Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm happy you're joining us this weekend. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we are on our final sermon in our Lenten series, Lenten Ironies, and today arguably is the biggest biggest irony that we're going to run into, uh, how an object of death is ultimately viewed as an object of life for us as believers. And so our theme today is going to be simply a view of the cross, and we're going to let a few of the the, the people that were involved in the final hours of Jesus' life kind of guide us in our view of, of the cross View uh, and witnessing events are kind of notoriously difficult to do. I think if you talk to to prosecutors, if you talk to police officers, uh, they would admit that, that, that if you have a singular event and you had 50 witnesses, you almost would have 50 different stories of what happened with that event. Um, I think prosecutors and police officers know how notoriously fickle eyewitness accounts are, how quickly they change, how they can change from day to day, from week to week, and month to month, and even year to year. And on some level, we understand why that happens, right? I mean, there are things that that you probably have witnessed that if you recounted it, or maybe have even done that, told the story, and someone that was there realizes that none of that actually happened or it was a completely different view of what was happening. And so that just happens, I think, in our daily life. As we recall events that have happened in our lives, uh, there's a funny quote from Mark Twain where he kind of talks about that a little bit. He says, when I was younger, I could remember anything, whether it had happened or not. And some of that's true. In fact, I've got stories of my life that I swore I was a part of and I was the center of, and this, was, this actually happened to me only to find out that actually it wasn't. It happened to my younger brother, Marcus, or my older brother, Tommy. But you've heard the story so many times and you've placed yourself there uh, visually in your head and maybe even emotionally that over time, that story actually becomes you. It becomes your own truth. And so here's the reality. I think we have to understand that our eyewitness accounts, our view of things is remarkably fickle. What we know, I think, intuitively, just from our own lives, uh, actually has a name that's been put to it. It's called the Mandela Effect. So when, when, when um, things are assumed to have happened and it becomes kind of in the collective sphere of the world around us, popular culture around us, that's often referred to as a Mandela Effect. And it was named after uh, the, the president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, who many people assumed and thought, and maybe even to this day still think, died in prison in South Africa, when in reality, he didn't. He was released from that prison and actually ended up being one of the first leaders of South Africa, the new country of South Africa, uh, and died quite a few years later. But that 
problem of the Mandela effect, uh, it kind of affects us in a lot of different ways. And so I thought I'd bring along a, a little bit of a quiz for you here this morning. Uh, examples of Mandela effect. Now I know you're sharper than, than most, so you'll probably get most of these, but, but some of them are, are at least take a few seconds for us to think through which one is actually correct? And so I brought some pictures along for you. You're going to see them on your screen in front of you. They're side-by-side -side pictures, and on some level, you have to decide which one is actually the real picture, which view is actually correct. The first is, is an image of what everybody has in their pantry, peanut butter, right? And our favorite peanut butter, of course, is Jiffy. Or is it? Or is it Jiff? Yeah, you know which one's right? It's actually Jif, isn't it? And so many people think that, that Jiffy was the actual name, and it's probably a conglomeration of the peanut butter named Jif and the peanut butter called Skippy kind of melded together, right? But it's actually Jif peanut butter, isn't it? Uh, the, the next one that we look at um, is the uh, pretty common one. This is a childhood book, but the Berenstain Bears... So is it Berenstein or Berenstain? Okay, think about it a little bit. Yeah, it's actually Berenstain Bears, right? With an A-I, not Berenstein Bears. Um, and for the longest time, I think I always said it wrong as well, right? So actually Berenstain Bears. It always has been, um, always will be. How about Looney Tunes? What's the correct spelling of Looney Tunes? We all got the Looney part, but Tunes, two O's or a U-N-E-S? Correct one? It's actually U-N-E-S. It's Looney Tunes, right? Which doesn't actually make a ton of sense, but it's always been Looney Tunes, right? Uh, another one, uh, that, this one is one that, that you have to maybe look and do a double take at. Curious George. We all know he's a monkey, right? Does he have a tail or not? Well, and now you're probably catching on that I'm trying to trick you on everyone, right? But... Curious George and all the pictures that he is depicted in never actually has a tail. Curious, right? <laughs> no tail. The last one, if you're a Star Wars fan, C-3PO. Oftentimes, our, uh, the image of C-3PO is a, a gold-colored droid, when in reality, you know C-3PO actually had one silver leg. And so these are just maybe silly examples of that Mandela effect, but things that get into our collective consciousness that we would swear, and maybe you'd even put down a bet on that these are what are correct or not correct. But our view of it simply is skewed for a variety of reasons. Maybe the emotions involved, maybe our memories just have been slipping, maybe someone has repeated it to us incorrectly so many times that now we believe it is correct and then we become a part of that chain and we incorrectly share it with somebody else. But there's a whole host of reasons why our view and our witness of something can get remarkably skewed. That's what we wanna look at in our text here today because you have two men both with the exact same view of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and yet they viewed him in vastly different ways. And so that's what we want to dig into today. We want to ask ourselves, how do we view our Savior, especially on the eve of Holy Week and Easter? What is our view of Jesus, his death and his resurrection? 
And so before we jump into our text here this weekend, just set a little bit of scene because we fast forwarded from last week. Um, This is the very end of Jesus' life. So he has been um, mocked, humiliated, tried, um, um, prosecuted, and now has been nailed to a cross. So, So at the point of our text here today, Jesus is hanging, literally the life running out of him as he dies on that cross. In our text, we find him there with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And so here's where we're going to head today as we try to, try to um, clarify our view of Jesus and the cross. We want to look specifically at these two men and how they viewed Jesus. Then I want to back out a little bit and talk about how many of the people in and around Jesus' last week of his life viewed Jesus. So the varying views of Jesus at the end of his life. But then ultimately, we want to ask ourselves what differentiates the views that people had of Jesus at that time. And then finally, what, how we're going to conclude is, what impact does that have on us then as, as a church and as individual Christians? So that's kind of a little bit of a framework, a roadmap of where we're headed in our text here today. So you're welcome to join along with me. I'm going to begin by reading for you verse 32, and then we're actually going to jump to verses 39 through 43, which makes up the bulk of the text that we're talking about here today. So beginning at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's a remarkable interaction between three men and specifically between two criminals, one on the right, one on the left. It's amazing how disparate a view of Jesus these two men had. It's amazing how, how, vastly different their view of Jesus was in the final moments of their lives. And, excuse me, if anything, this should have been a clarifying moment for both of those men. Because just remember what's happening here. All three of them are dying. They have been physically nailed to the cross. They have been beaten within an inch of their lives. There is no going back. There is no pardon. No one's getting them down off of here. They are going to die a slow death. And so if there was ever a time for a little bit of humility and introspection, you would have thought that this was the moment for it. And yet, it's amazing how both of these men react in vastly different ways. Now, remember they are there by their own admission, justly. Uh, traditionally, we call these the two thieves on the cross, right? And, and that is probably accurate, although death sentence just for thievery probably wasn't always the thing that was prescribed, right? Um, in fact, we would say, well, that's a pretty, pretty strong sentence for just stealing something. And so it is pretty clear that these men were there not just for stealing a soda out of a convenience store. These men were there not only for robbery, but probably aggravated assault and most likely murder, that they had taken someone else's life in, and then their punishment was that their life would be taken. And so that's the moment that we have here. Basically, two murderers that are being killed next to the innocence of Jesus between them. And yet, 
vastly different uh, um, reactions to who Jesus is. One criminal simply poured it on, hurled insults at Jesus, made fun of him, mocked him for supposedly being the son of God, um, um, continued to kind of double down on his arrogance and his pride. And so we talked about that, that um, introspection that's even that idea of how do we view ourselves, which when we're talking about viewing the cross, probably where we begin is how do we even view ourselves? And that's maybe a good question for us to ask here this weekend. How do we view ourselves? Here's what I think far too often happens. We view ourselves in a much better light than we view others around us. And what I mean by that is when somebody sins against you, how often we view that as, as an absolute moral kind of character issue, right? When somebody breaks, breaks a promise to us or someone badmouths us or someone um, reacts in anger against us, we are so quick to ascribe to them some character flaw, like, I cannot believe they would do that. And, and almost in, insinuating that there is something deeply wrong with them, that they're on the verge of being a sociopath because of what they did to me, Right? And so when someone sins against us, I think we, we blow this thing up and we, we, we go straight to their character and we say, once they do it once, they're going to keep doing it. And we ascribe all of these things to them, don't we? But when we maybe do that very same sin, when we talk badly about somebody, when we, when we break a promise, um, when we react in anger, we've always got convenient excuses, don't we? Well, I just, I truly tried, but I just didn't have time. Right? And surely they're going to understand that I, I just couldn't follow through on that. I got really angry, but you know, I mean, I just didn't, I didn't have the right sleep. My blood sugar was low. I hadn't eaten a Snickers. Like, I've got lots of reasons why. I mean, I'm not normally an angry person, but just in that moment, it was a little bit of a slip up. But you see how our view and witness of ourselves at times can be so skewed. In others, their sin is so grievous and so terrible, and yet when we do it, it's, it's just a small mistake, just a slip-up. We won't even call it a sin. It's just a, just a slip-up, right? And yet the truth is somewhere in between, isn't it? Sin is serious. It's serious when others sin against us because it hurts and it tears apart relationships. But it's just as serious when we commit it against others. And so our view of ourselves has to be through sober eyes. We have to view ourselves in the reality of who we are, that we are not perfect, that we have sinned, that we have hurt people, that we have let people down, that we have torn apart relationships, that we are just as responsible as the other person in that relationship. That's the clarity we have to have when viewing ourselves. Christianity has a word for it. We call it confession. We confess our sinfulness. You don't confess the sinfulness of someone else. You go to your Lord and confess your sinfulness. Ultimately, that's what separated these two men in this final moment. One held on to his pride and his anger and heaped on insults unto Jesus. And yet in the second criminal, we see something completely different. We see humility. We see a willingness to, to own up to the mistakes and the sins that he has made and to throw himself at the feet of Jesus Christ, completely at Jesus' mercy and 
ask for forgiveness. It's a completely different way of viewing Jesus. And what was the difference? Humility, but ultimately seeing Jesus through the lens of grace. One wanted nothing to do with Jesus as Lord and Savior. He much preferred to die with his own life and his own sins in his own hands. The other simply threw himself at Jesus' feet and asked for forgiveness and knew that Jesus was powerful enough and was the Son of God and could and would, in fact, help him. In fact, that's what Jesus says to him. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was no real difference between these two men. But humility and grace made them, caused them to see Jesus in a vastly different way. Well, let's broaden it out a little bit. How about many of the people that were in and around Jesus in the last days of his life? Well, we see in a microcosm from these two thieves, we see in the macrocosm of the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, some of it's in our text here today, but some of it's in our surrounding text, right? We have a a crowd that is willing to continue to heap on insults. We see religious leaders, insiders, uh, who had power and control and did not want to lose it, continuing to throw on um, humility and insults onto Jesus, even though he was already dying on the cross. And yet, we also see other reactions. At Jesus' feet are women who had followed Jesus his entire ministry and now wept as he was there dying. Women who would be the first ones to come to the empty tomb and to be able to proclaim that Jesus had risen from death. Just after this, we have a centurion Roman soldier who was not ethnically Jew, who was on the outside, who worked for the enemy, for the Romans, who watched Jesus and the events that happened and proclaimed him and praised him as the Son of God. We have uh, um, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a religious insider, who was part of the Sanhedrin and was a Pharisee, and yet asks to be able to take Jesus' body down to give him a proper burial. Joseph, who believed and put his faith and his trust in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And so if you back out to, to this entire last week of Jesus' life, we see an incredibly complex vision and view of who Jesus is. And when we start pulling each of those characters apart, the only trend that that reveals itself is that grace is what separated their view of Jesus. And here's one of the most beautiful things that we see. It made no difference if you were a religious insider or a religious outsider. It didn't matter if you were ethnically Jewish or you were a Roman centurion. It didn't matter if you were a man or if you were a woman. It didn't matter if you were guilty or a thief on a cross. Jesus' grace and the forgiveness that he shows to us crosses all spectrum and all boundaries. That's the beauty of the last week of Jesus' life. You see people coming to faith in Christ from every single walk of life. The most beautiful part of that is Jesus' own words to everyone, not just to those who believed in him, but also to those who continue to mock him and scorn him. Jesus' words to them were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Those are the same words he gives to us. Those are the same words that have been changing hearts for 2,000 years since Jesus' death and resurrection. Those are the same words that have changed your heart. Those words 
reassure us, reassure you that your sins are forgiven, that it makes no difference who you are, where you come from, or the baggage you have from your past, that you place yourself at the foot of the cross in humility and through grace we receive his forgiveness. Those words are your words. Those words have been changing hearts and changing the world for thousands of years. Those are the words that impact us now as we approach Easter. Because that's our view of Jesus, not the view of, of someone that we ought to heap scorn on, but view of a Savior who willingly laid down his life so that our sins could be washed clean, who willingly let his blood be shed so that you would know that you are forgiven. And so it's in view of these words and of Christ that then we are able to view our world and the neighbors around us and the the world in which we exist in a vastly different way. Not in a selfish, self-serving way, but in a selfless way through the lens of grace. We're able to see every last person as a beloved child of God. We're able to see that Jesus died on the cross for all mankind, no matter where you come from or who you are. And so these words, if they've changed your heart personally, they must change our view as believers in in how we see the world around us. And it must change how we act and how we view the world around us as a church. What does it look like? Well, I think as an institution, it means that we simply purely proclaim the words of Jesus, that we are forgiven, not because of works, but on account of grace and what Jesus has done for, the, for us. And we do that fearlessly. We share Jesus Christ fearlessly with a world that is going to view that message in vastly different ways. For some, they'll view that message of Jesus with hatred, maybe with shame, maybe you felt it. Right? invited a friend uh, to Easter, uh, um, shared Jesus with somebody that was really struggling, and maybe their reaction to you was hatred and insults, or maybe they just simply ignored you altogether. But there are going to be those that you share Jesus with which, uh, who view that message in a vastly different way and who don't react with hatred and anger, but whose lives are forever changed because of the message that you have shared with them about Jesus Christ, who understand their brokenness and their sinfulness and are looking for nothing less than a Messiah and a Savior who has forgiven them of those sins and, will re- and reassures them of eternal life. And that's our privilege as believers. We get to share that good news with everyone. As an institution, but also for you as individuals. God has put people into your life. He has given you a specific mission field. You have the the, um, ability to impact people with the message of Christ and forgiveness of sins that I or we as an institution at CVL will never be able to reach. That's the beauty of the Christian church. And if we want to know what impact that has, number one, we can look at our own hearts because he's changed your heart and the trajectory of your life. But we can even look to the trajectory of the Christian church because billions of hearts have been changed through the the news that Jesus Christ has indeed died and risen again and our sins have been washed clean. And so our view of the cross is not a view of death and destruction, and failure. But ironically, 
our view of the cross as believers has now changed that object of scorn into an object of life. An object that, that conveys grace and forgiveness and love and inclusion to all who come to Jesus. Our view of Christ, I think it can sometimes become a little bit clouded. But here's the beauty that we get to see. At the cross, let our eyes be crystal clear as to not only who we are, but who Jesus was on our behalf. And he was nothing less than your Savior and your Messiah. Let's hold on to that view. Because that's the only view that matters. That's the view that leads us to see the world around us in a vastly different way. And it's ultimately the view that allows us to see that our eternity, our eternal life, is destined to be with Jesus himself. Amen.